0: the ice analytics podcast is sponsored by MyBookie. as you guys know there's no other sport like hockey from the fast tempo to the fights to the highlight reel plays and there's no better way to make it more exciting than laying some money on it by understanding the details of each team and game which i'm sure you do listening to this podcast you can turn that knowledge into cash with mybookie.ag nobody gives you more ways to win than they do they have the best payouts and better odds than any other sports book out there. And I wouldn't be telling you this if they weren't the best. You can risk a little or a lot on as many games as you want. And if you join my bookie now, they will match your first deposit 50% up to $1,000. That means if you deposit $100, you'll get extra $50 of free money. Deposit $500, you get an extra $250. Just use the promo code THPN to activate the offer And take advantage of this. Visit mybookie.ag today. Play, you win, you get paid. Just remember to use that promo code THPN. They'll match 50% of your first deposit. On this world premiere of Ice Analytics, I'm gonna be talking about backup goaltending. Why does it matter, and what teams have a reason to be concerned this season? I'm also gonna be joined by two very special guests Tom Franklin of the Blue Notes podcast and Brendan Farrell of the Grit Per 60 podcast. Without further ado, This is Ice Analytics, hosted by the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Ice Analytics. I am your host, Matthew Arp. Throughout this season, I'm going to be asking one big NHL-related question per episode and exploring the answer using the available data. First and foremost, I want to shout out and thank the Hockey Podcast Network for giving me an opportunity to do an analytics podcast and for all their support in this endeavor. So you're probably asking yourself about now, who the hell is this guy and why should I care? Well, for starters, my background is in research methodology and design. I've earned a PhD in political science with an emphasis on research methods. I've worked on a variety of data collection, synthesis, and dissemination projects But like most of my colleagues in the humanities and social sciences, I've been struggling to find full-time employment. Well, thankfully for you all, I haven't resigned myself to a career as a barista yet. In the meantime, I'm going to be focused on bringing you in-depth analysis every Friday on this ICE Analytics podcast. The format for this podcast is going to be pretty simple. First, there's going to be a weekly segment called Number Crunch, I'm going to be asking a question and exploring the answers using whatever data, numbers, and analytics that are available to us. Then I'm going to be joined by a guest on our second segment, Stat Chat, to get an insider perspective on these findings and if they pass the eye test. If you're still listening and haven't fallen asleep yet, I hope you find these topics to be as informative as I do. And be sure to hit me up on Twitter, at Ice Analytics. Throw me some ideas of future topics that you want me to discuss, or let me know what your thoughts are on these findings. Also, check out my website, www.statsenforcer.com, where I'm going to be posting the show notes to these episodes if you want to follow along and see the data that I'm using throughout the episodes. So on this week's episode on Number Crunch, I'm going to be exploring the value of the backup goaltending position. The backup goaltender is probably one of the most underappreciated roles in the NHL. These guys are criminally underpaid and underappreciated. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't sleep on them and which teams could have a problem lurking underneath the surface. This is going to be followed up by a double feature of Stat Chat. Probably the only time we're going to do it uh, this season. I'm going to be joined by Tom Franklin of the Blue Notes podcast and Brendan Farrell of the Grit Per 60 podcast. I'm going to be talking to Tom about the resurgence of the St. Louis Blues backup goaltender, Jake Allen, and his sustainability throughout this season. And I'm going to follow that up with a discussion with Brendan about the performance of Winnipeg Jets backup goaltender, Laurent Bressois, who has regressed substantially from last year. So without further ado, let's get into number crunch. So, as I mentioned earlier, the backup goaltender position is extremely underappreciated in the NHL. These guys get ragged on when they play a back to back and they lose the game. You know, your starter goes down with injuries. You lean on your backup, they're not as good. These guys are the scapegoats for a lot of teams when they're not performing well. But when they do perform well, I don't think they get enough credit. And I think we need to look at two. Examples, two case studies from last season just to illustrate how important this position is. Let's take a look at the Montreal Canadiens from last year. This offensively extremely talented team missed the playoffs by three points last year. Three points. I'm not trying to point fingers at one particular reason for why they missed the playoffs, but you can't ignore that Auntie Niemi had an awful year last year. He played 17 games. He went 8-6-2. He had a 3.78 goals against average and a sub-98% save percentage. Compared to Price, who was close to 91%, there was a 25 goals saved against average differential between Niemi and Price. Now listen, there's a lot of blame to go around. The special teams didn't do him any favors, but this didn't help. Let me put this in perspective for you. Nemi gave up four or more goals in eight of his starts. He gave up six against Tampa Bay and Edmonton. He gave up seven goals against Minnesota. He gave four goals against San Jose, Philly, Vegas, and Buffalo. He lost all but one of those games. Now take a guess what his record was when he gave up three goals or less. Eight, oh, and one. Honestly, you can't expect your offense to carry you and score five goals a game. And I think if we would have seen a few of these games go to overtime or a few of these games go from losses to wins, Montreal would be making the playoffs instead of missing the playoffs. The counterpoint to this is what happened in Dallas. You got two solid goaltenders in Hudobin and Ben Bishop. They both had over 92% save percentage, respectively, 16.6 and 30.8 goals saved above average. Now, this team was not great offensively. This Dallas team only scored 210 goals in the entire year, which is less than every team in the Eastern Conference by 12 goals. Jersey scored 12 more goals than Dallas did. Now, I understand you got a really good defensive system, but you got to execute. And Hudobin was good enough to play 40 games last year and help carry this team into the playoffs. While Montreal and Dallas represent two ends of the spectrum in terms of having strong backup goaltending, the list doesn't stop there. You look at Anaheim with Chad Johnson and Ryan Miller, or Arizona with Hill and Ranta, Carolina with Darling and McElhaney, Tampa Bay with Domingue, and Philly with Picard, Stolitz, and Elliott, and even Toronto with Garrett Sparks. The difference between missing the playoffs and making the playoffs is, is extremely a fine line in such a high parity league like the NHL. And you have to ask yourself which one of these teams might have made the playoffs if their backup goaltenders played a little bit better. Which brings us to this season. Because if you survey the landscape of goaltending, and especially backup goaltending, there's really four different categories. First, there's teams that just have bad goaltending. Teams like LA, Detroit, Minnesota and especially San Jose with both Dell and Jones sub 90% with Jones having 22 goals saved below average. he's The dude's only played 28 games. He's almost averaging one goal given up more per game than an average goaltender. How are you supposed to make the playoffs with that? Well, moving on. The second category, teams that just have good goaltending across the board. Arizona, Ranta and Kemper this year, both over 93% in their save percentage. Vancouver, Islanders, Boston, St. Louis. These teams are getting good goaltending, above average goaltending, from both of their netminders. Not worried about that. Third category, teams with better backups than starters. How about Carolina with Reimer outplaying Morazic? How about Pittsburgh and Tristan Jerry? This dude's pretty good, 95% save percentage at even strength in 16 games. Fourth category, the one we really care about. Teams that just have bad backup goaltending. Teams with a disparity between their starters and their backups. This is what we care about. These are the teams we're going to talk about. These are the teams that need to be concerned this season. Bear in mind, all these numbers I mentioned are going to be at even strength because special teams is is its own thing. I'm not trying to get into that. And, you know, we just want to see a goaltender at even strength, how they're performing. First and foremost, I've identified four teams that I think have some level of concern and that concern is a little different, but there's four teams that should be concerned. Number one, Edmonton Oilers. Mike Smith has played 19 games. He's got an 88% and change save percentage and he's 11 goals in the hole below average when it comes to goals saved. That's not a good look. That's uh, It's a team that's been doing well offensively. They started the season with you know a, a pretty solid goalie tandem. Mike Smith has regressed substantially. And they're trying to make the playoffs this year. You can't have that. You can't be giving, giving goals away like that. Another team that's kind of on the cusp, Toronto. Michael Hutchinson, he got sent down. He came back up. What's going on with this guy? Well, he's only played eight games. He's played better since the Mike Babcock firing, but he's still got a sub-90% save percentage and he's almost about five goals saved below average, and that's in eight games. Nashville, Saros, Rene's backup. This guy's the future. They just signed him to a couple of multi-year extension. Saros is the guy they want. They're grooming to replace Pekarene. Not doing that great this year. Ninety and change save percentage. Five point three goals saved below average. Winnipeg, a team I mentioned earlier. As far as the one of the guests I'm going to have on on the stat chat, Rousseau is up to about 90 and a half save percentage, but he's still minus two and change goals saved below average. And you compare that to Hellebuck, who who's got a 94% save percentage at even strength and 16 and a half goals saved above average. There's no comparison. No comparison at all. I got a couple honorable mentions. Columbus with Merz-Lincolns, they got some concerns there. And Brian Elliott in Philly, they need to have some concerns there as well. So those are really the four teams plus two that I think have to be at least a little bit concerned this season. Nashville and Winnipeg are in a dead heat right now, separated by two points for that third spot in the Central Division. I mean, this should be some concern to them. I know Toronto's been playing a little bit better offensively, but you know, they're not running away with anything. They're locked into that second spot right now in the Atlantic, but you know, the Canadians are right on their tail. Philly only has a one point lead over both the Penguins and the Hurricanes. So even though Philly's been playing well as of late, you know, they need to be concerned about Brian Elliott and Edmonton, a team that was rolling to start this season now has negative goal differential. They've slid from first place. They've been overtaken by both the Coyotes and Vegas. They got the Flames and Canucks right on their tail within two points of taking their spot. You can't tell me that these teams shouldn't be concerned. Every one of these teams, Edmonton, Toronto, Nashville, Winnipeg, and even Columbus and Philly to a certain extent, need to be a little concerned. Because remember the story of the 2018-2019 Montreal Canadiens. Some of these teams need to rely on a backup goaltender for 20 to 25 games. You need them for back-to-backs. You need them if there's an injury. Honestly, some of these guys are not going to replace their starters. Hellebuck, it doesn't matter who you have on your team, no one's gonna replace Connor Hallibuck. The guy is playing out of this world. And you might not be able to replace his production, but for these teams that I just mentioned, I think you need to seriously evaluate your backup goaltending position. And you should probably address this well before the trade deadline if you are not confident in the guys that you have in that locker room because three points and it wasn't all just because of the backup goaltending position but as i mentioned earlier a lot of these teams are separated by a razor thin margin and making the playoffs in the nhl is not easy there's a lot of teams that are extremely competitive this year the backup goaltender position can make or break your chances of making the playoffs I hope you made it this far. I'm going to be joined on a special double feature of Stat Chat featuring Tom Franklin and Brendan Farrell. I hope you enjoy. Today on Stat Chat, I'm joined by Tom Franklin, the host of Blue Notes Representing the St. Louis Blues on the Hockey Podcast Network. You can find Tom on Twitter at Blue Notes Pod. Welcome to the world premiere episode of Ice Analytics. Hey, I'm glad to be on
1: with you. And uh, you know, I'm I'm really honored to be, you know, on the premiere episode of this, uh, this brand new venture of yours. And I don't know what I did to deserve it, but
0: I am so glad to be here, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you do do great, great work. And the Blues are in a really unique position this year to actually, uh, it's very topical um, about backup goaltending. But before we do that, I just want to ask, generally speaking about about the Blues this season, they're not taking off the first half of the season like they did last year. Uh, so how you feeling about not only their playoff chances, but their Stanley Cup chances?
1: Well, they took off maybe about a week, you know, not long after the season started. I mean, you always talk in hockey about the proverbial Stanley Cup hangover, where teams that win the Stanley Cup have that short off season and they come out a little sluggish out of the gate. And with the Blues, that it, it, there was a little bit of a burp, but it wasn't bad. And they uh, they've been playing really good hockey, especially you know here in the early part of December, late part of November, uh, when we're when we're recording this. I mean, they've they they just got done clapping Chicago four to nothing. They're starting to really beat teams. I mean, like like for the longest time this season. And you know, as a, as a numbers guy, you can probably attest to this a little bit. While they were playing winning hockey, there was they there was areas that they definitely needed to improve upon. They went to overtime a lot. They won a lot of one, uh, one goal games. They have a lot of overtime losses, which tells you there's they're competitive and they are still a good team that finds ways to get points, but it's been pretty noted that, you know, in the analytics community that, the Blues, they didn't have the hottest of starts this year and, and there may have been some fortune to their good record, but lately they're playing very well. And as far as their playoff chances, I think playoff chances, I think that's pretty much I don't want to go out of certainty because anything can happen in hockey as evidenced by the Blues last season but i i have a really good feeling that they will probably be a one seed maybe a two seed this coming playoffs i'm that confident in this team because even though they've had some injuries they're still playing pretty good hockey and as far as their Stanley Cup chances i mean i don't see a reason why they can't go back to the final uh, except you know just running across another hot team you know one thing about the NHL playoffs that that makes it so great is that You can enter as an eighth seed and still have a shot. You just need to have a good run. You need to have a hot goaltender. And last year, I mean, the Blues had Jordan Binnington. And, you know, he's, you know, I think he's proven this year he's the real deal. I don't think he's going to be a flash in the pan. But you do need hot goaltending in order to make it to the finals and lift the cup. I think with every cup winner, That's been pretty much a certainty. So I know we're going to talk about goalies here in this uh, episode, Matt, and uh, uh, just look forward to giving you some perspective just on uh, where a lot of the blue success lies. And I think it lies really in between the pipes.
0: Well, that's a great segue because uh, yeah. I was going to say, Jake Allen is having his best statistical season to date, uh, even better than his 2015-2016 campaign uh, when you look at some of the analytics. And in some areas, he's actually outperforming Bennington uh, in sure. things like even strength save percentage and expected goal save. And it kind of begs the question uh, whether Bennington is coming back down to earth this year compared to last year, or is Allen just having like an aberrational year and he's just playing like out of his mind?
1: Well, let me give you some perspective on Jake Allen, first of all. And I, and I kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit when you were talking about the blues goaltending situation and you mentioned Jake Allen, first of all, people, you know, every team, it seems in, you know, hockey has a whipping boy in their fan base, even Stanley cup winning teams. They have that one guy that seems to divide the fan base and have at least a segment of that fan base viscerally against that guy. And for this season, it was Jake Allen going into the season. He's a guy that makes $4.35 million for this year and next. He's a making a lot of money for being a backup goaltender. And starting off in this season, you know, looking at the work rate and workload for both Bennington and Allen this year. um, It's been very obvious that Bennington has been getting the lion's share of the work so far. And at the time we're recording this, he is tied for the league lead in wins. You don't get that many wins unless you're playing a lot of games and the split, I think for a while there was something like four to one between Bennington and Allen. Now the, the, the thing with Allen and he, he has kind of come on in the last couple of weeks is that part of the reason he's been so divisive is that he gets what I call the yips. And and when I say the yips, I mean, he tends to allow bad goals and he has a tendency to just kind of, he, he can be frustrating to watch at times. I noticed in twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, last season, that he had a major issue and that is teams often beat him by going high shoulder on him. And I don't know what analytics uh you know can tell us when it comes to like maybe weak points in a goalie. But from just from my observation, it seems obvious he has an issue and up until his recent good run, still kind of had that issue this season where he tends to sometimes, you know, dip his shoulder a little bit. Like if he has a shot that's incoming on him, you can watch him physically in net and you can see like his shoulder just kind of collapsed a little bit and just allow the puck to go by. It's a weird thing. And and this may be just me being crazy. Maybe this is something that I'm only noticing, but yeah, he tends to get beat high. And with Jake Allen, his the big thing with Jake Allen is that the physically he has all the tools. He is uh, agile, he is big, and he is everything you would want physically out of a modern NHL goaltender. The issue has always been between the ears with Jake Allen. He seems to have issues with confidence. And it's one thing um, that I noticed last year when Jordan Bennington kind of made his big run is Bennington plays very assured in net. I mean, whenever he makes a move from one post to the other, he makes a move and he goes to the spot. He is where he needs to be. And he plays with a lot of confidence. And when you talk to Jordan Bennington, as I have, he is a very confident person. He's got a this weird kind of understated chill personality, but nothing bothers him. And it kind of and to me that highlighted the issue that Jake Allen has had in recent years where he has not had that self-confidence. Well, one thing the Blues have figured out, and this is something that I think analytics has helped out with, is for whatever reason, and it may be because of the fan base being kind of on his case a little bit, since Craig Berube has taken over as head coach, Jake Allen has played far better on the road than at home. At home, since Ruby's taken over, he has a goals against average in the high threes. I think it's something like 3.8 or 3.7, somewhere in that range. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But at home, he's been like a 2.2 goals against average. And so the last couple of games that he has played in, he's played really well. He shut out the Blackhawks in Chicago. Usually not an easy feat, although... Chicago has you know, not had a good year this year, and I think the fans have kind of tuned out a little bit in Chicago. There was a lot of let's-go-blues chants this past Monday, for instance. But getting back to Allen, I, a lot of the reason that he's been playing so well, he's playing on the road and he's playing with confidence. He's got his mojo back. He's got his swagger back. And he's you know, starting to play with that assuredness that I was talking about with Bennington and you know you're asking just kind of you know about uh, his improvement this year well a lot was made uh, when Bennington was making his hot run how good of a teammate that Jake Allen was being because Bennington effectively came in and took his spot Allen was a starting goaltender last season Bennington rose up took the mantle of the number one goaltending spot and you started hearing stories about how Jake Allen was being a good teammate he was kind of being you know they're, they're they're not far in terms of age but Allen's played longer so he was kind of a mentor to Bennington kind of helped him out a little bit but I think what has happened this season is I think that relationship has kind of turned a little bit and I think where Allen is getting his self-confidence from is from Jordan Bennington. Bennington again he has this it's it's not infectious personality. It's a unique personality. You like hanging around with him. He's a funny guy. He's got good one-liners, but he has a tendency to make others around him kind of feel as chill as he is. And I think he's rubbing off on Jake Allen. And I've, I've seen just, just talking with Jake Allen and seeing him in post-game scrums the last couple of weeks, you can definitely tell he's a lot more relaxed and he's a lot more, uh, 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 carefree and confident. And so I think to answer, this has been a very long-winded answer, but I think to kind of answer your question uh, earlier, I think the biggest thing with Allen is that his confidence is back.
0: No, and that has a lot to do with it. And we see this time and time again when it comes to goaltenders. Uh, Jake Allen, throughout his career, he's had really good years. He's had really yeah. bad years. And I think that, that the psychological angle of it is is a really important one. Uh, but I, I like the other thing you mentioned about uh, Barube and his uh execution or his system. And I'm curious, uh, you, you mentioned the home and away splits in terms of his stats. We know that systems have a defensive systems have a lot to do with how well goaltenders perform. Sure. Um, what, what have you seen before and after with Barube? What has he done differently that has led to? Allen's resurgence of of having a a good career is it is there something schematically that he's doing differently, whether it comes to like defensive pairings or deployment or something like that? Well, the big thing
1: I think that changed with this team, and it was it was was a lot. There was a culture issue with this team when Mike Yo was the head coach. Uh, Yo did not allow his players to be very expressive and free flowing, and his system was considered kind of complicated. And maybe a little bit too complex for his own good. Yo was always kind of a guy that, to me, kind of came off as like the smartest guy in the room, and you know, you very brainy type type of a guy. And it doesn't always work, you know, when when you're dealing with with, with hockey players. Um, and I think Baruby, in turn, was a fresh was a breath of fresh air for this team. Course, Baruby, you you know, if if you watched hockey growing up in the 80s and 90s, like I did, you know Craig Baruby as this big mean enforcer from the Philadelphia Flyers. uh, got into a lot of fights, and he was just this, you know, kind of you know, granite-faced, you know, monster that you know you would have to come up across now and then. And really that hasn't that rep hasn't changed too much. I mean, no, he's not a he's not a violent guy anymore obviously, but when you talk to him, you know, he's still kind of an intimidating guy at least from my point of view because he does have that face of granite. But at the same time he's he's very soft spoken and he talks I feel like not he doesn't he talks at the player's level. He understands the players language he was a player himself and he is he is a true players coach i think um and he is a guy that i know has commanded a lot of respect in the locker room and he's a guy you you you, you just like following um he he's he, he just a he, he's just been a real players coach and there was there there's been some issues in recent years with the blues with locker room culture and some some players that, you know, tend to maybe affect the locker room a little bit more than they should have. But since Barubi's taken over, I mean, he's been kind of like the calm in the storm, and he's kind of gotten everyone back on, on the same level. And, you know, and, and, and another thing that he did, and kind of touching up on my point about Mike Yo's system being complex, is that Berube, uh, his, you know, when, when he took over, his first thing was to kind of get back to scratch. And, you know, simplify things a little bit for the players and not having the players like thinking so much about, oh, I got to be at, you know, the X, you know, that, you know, Mike Yo mentioned I should be at at this point. Instead, you know, he's letting players play with a little bit more instinct. And how that applies to Jake Allen, you know, it's actually interesting. You're talking about the defense in front of Jake Allen. Uh, recently, the Athletic put out an article about how Craig Berube this year has had some trouble finding the right defensive pairings, and a lot, and some of that has to do with the fact with uh, that they traded for Justin Falk right before the season. You have you have Justin Falk coming into a team that just won the Stanley Cup. That's still a very tight knit group, and it's taken him a little while to mesh with this team. Not that I think he's going to have any problems long term. Uh, and, and keep in mind, we're still just at the quarter post of the season. So there's still a long ways to go. But it has taken Justin Falk a little bit of a while to get used to the team. And I think on the flip side of that, I think it's taken Barubi a little bit of time as well to figure out just exactly where he fits. Uh, the first couple weeks, he had Justin Falk paired up with Alex Petrangelo, meaning that one of them was going to be on their offhand. Uh, it was Pertrangelo, but that was on his offhand for a while. They're both right-handed shots. And you haven't seen that ever since. Usually Falk gets paired up with a Vince Dunn, who's a very offensive-minded defenseman. Sometimes you'll see Falk with a Carl Gunnarsson at times, who's a, you know, kind of a responsible two-way defender, but he's, a, you know, bottom-pairing type. And with Falk's addition as well, I mean, I just rattled off three different names on the blues defense there, that's, you know, three different combinations I just mentioned. And so the challenge this year for Ruby has been figuring out, okay, what, what works, what pairings work. And that's reflective a little bit in the fact when you look at the blues from game to game, to game, to game, they're allowing a lot of shots. Uh, There was a, there was a two game stretch recently where Jordan Bennington in two games saw a total of 83 shots. Wow. 40 it was like 40 and 43 in 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 the two games. Just this even in the shutout win over Chicago, uh Jake Allen faced 38 shots. Uh there there is an issue where the Blues in the past few years have had a reputation for being very stingy on defense where they don't allow a lot of shots. I mean, there's a lot of You'll see a lot of like you know games where they allow like eighteen shots, twenty shots, twenty-two shots. That's very low, especially in in this in this modern time. Um, This year they're allowing a lot more shots, but I think you know, and and you can probably, and others in the analyst community can tell me this here as well. You can pump as many shots as you want from like the blue line, um, or you know that are from tough angles. You can pump as many shots as they want. The odds are going to tell you they're not going to go in. They're not going to be very effective. So there is – so while there has been a quantity of shots this year that the Blues have allowed, I don't think there's been a lot of quality shots that they have allowed. They still don't really – this is still a very good defense, you know, filled with, with very good players. And they, they they do their goalies a lot of favors by not allowing a whole lot of, like, prime real estate shots, like in the slot or or, or in, you know, like, from the near circle. They still keep – they still pre- do pretty well at keeping teams, you know, on the periphery a little bit. Um, and I guess one final point I'll make uh, about, you know, defense and goalies and Jake Allen, I really think there's something to – how well a goalie plays and how the uh, there's an effect on the defense in front of him. When Jake Allen has games where he starts allowing soft goals or he makes these mental mistakes, I think there is, it's not an apparent thing, but I think there is a loss of confidence in the defense and that's where things tend to have a bit of a domino effect. Um, I I, and I and it it became apparent this is not one of those things that became apparent when Jordan Bennington took over and started doing what he was doing. When a goalie's playing well and he is making these really big saves, it has an effect on the rest of the team. Let's go back to game seven of the Stanley Cup final. First period, uh Blues and Bruins. Jordan Bennington makes at least three or four saves in that period that are save of the year contenders. And it could have easily been 2 nothing Bruins, 3 nothing Bruins, and instead he kept them off the scoreboard. And what happens from there? The Blues get two quick goals in the first period and they take control of the game. There's something to a goalie playing well that has an effect on the team. And when you look at Jake Allen and when you see him playing confidently and you see him making big saves, that has an effect on the rest of the team as well. And I think his defense in where may not have been the case in past years, they're starting to play well in front of him as well.
0: Well, I like the fact that you brought up Berube and, uh, in his style compared to previous coaches, because I don't, I don't, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy who would be open to analytics. Uh, he seems like one of these old school hockey guys and, and like you cited his, his career, as a former player and as a, as an enforcer type of player. Um, But we do know that it, it seems like St. Louis is embracing the analytics movement. They did hire uh, Mike Perelman prior to last season That that's promising. That's a promising sign for people like me embracing the analytics movement. Uh, But, but what do you, uh, what have you heard? Or what do you know about, uh, you know, are, are they utilizing these, these metrics? Are they taking it seriously? They haven't come out like some teams like Anaheim and just completely blasted the notion of using any sort of metrics. But, you know, they're also not Kyle Dubas in the Maple Leafs where they've got a you know, small army of, of statisticians working for them. W- where do you think the Blues uh, fall on that spectrum? I think there's still a blend. I mean, keep in mind,
1: Craig Berube is a former player, and and you know, Ruby was never like a high goal scorer or anything like that. Again, he was kind of an enforcer type. I still think that he makes you know at least you know a, a lot of his decisions based on what he's seeing and what he feels. Take for instance, I mean, I'll just give you an example. You know, from this past game on Saturday, um, Derek Pouliot came up from San Antonio. Uh, because of Bortuzo's suspension, and then, then there was also an injury as well. And Pouliot comes up in the second period, and he makes a really bad attempt at a hip check. This was just ugly as heck. And it was open ice. It was one-on-one. He tries to go for a hip check of all things, so I don't know why. And he ends up crashing to the ice, and then the, uh, the Penguins player just goes right around him, Ah, uh, Lafferty, Sam Lafferty, and then he ends up doing a nice little dipsy doodle on Bennington and scores. And then the next next shift that Pouliot is in, he takes a really sloppy, you know, tripping penalty. And from there, and this and this was in the second period, mind you. I think this was like early in the second period. You did not see Derek Pouliot the rest of the game. He yeah. rode Pine the rest of the game. And you don't need analytics to, see, to understand why he just made some, two really bad plays. That was totally a Baruby call right there. Um, on the flip side of that though, you know, I'm going to give you another example of Robbie Fabry. Uh, Robbie Fabry was traded to Detroit, partly because he couldn't find a role on Barubi's team. And I, and I think there was some personal issues with Fabry and Baruby. The two just never seemed to really get on, but, Fabry also didn't get in a lot of games, period. And he wasn't very productive when he did play. And I, I do suspect that a reason that Fabry didn't get in was because there was – the analytics team of the Blues was seeing that Fabry was not contributing, you know, even in just some of the secondary things that, you know, you like to see players do, like uh, just, just simply like connecting on passes, uh, being – you know, finding ways to create on offense – uh, puck possession and i think you know fabry had some issues just even handling the puck and so you know beside you know personal issues aside there was also some metrics that were working against robbie fabry and so he was traded off uh for uh jacob Delarose, who's just you know kind of a physical bottom six guy and robbie fabry you take a look at him in detroit and this is kind of an interesting area and this is kind of you know, I'll admit, I'm a little bit of a novice on the whole analytics and the, you know, really deep numbers of, of the game. But this is an area that intrigues me about analytics is because you take one look as an uneducated fan of, you know, hockey, and you see what Robbie Fabry has done in Detroit. 13 games, he has five goals and five assists for 10 points. That's really, on the surface, that's really good. I mean, he's almost scoring in a point-per-game clip, but he's also a minus 11. And his point shares on the season, if you take a look at those, they're not, they're not very good. They're, they're not even a full point. And there is, there is some issues, even though Fabry is you know, putting up some points. Talk to any Red Wings fan, and they'll tell you, Fabry's got some issues. And, and, and it's one of those things that analytics kind of points out here. And I think the Blues knew that, and I think that's a part of the reason why. I mean, you, you can't totally trade a player away just based on emotion and whether or not he gets along with the coach. You need to look at how he's contributing to the team. And Fabry just was not contributing, and that's why he was he was moved on. So to answer your question, I think it's a blend. Um, I, I think it's a blend. I mean, and, and I'll give you like another you know case by case example here. The Blues just brought back Troy Brower. He uh, was a free agent this year. He was sitting at home in Calgary. He was working out with the Calgary Hitmen, just you know, trying to stay in shape. And the Blues go up to Calgary for a game against the Flames, and Brower meets up with some of his old buddies, and his old buddies notice that hey, he's still in really good shape, and so they uh, convince uh, the team when the you know when they're starting to lose forwards, they lost Sammy Blay, they lost Alex Steen, they lost you know Tarasenko at this point. They convinced the team, hey, let's give this Troy Brower a shot. I mean, he's he may be old, but, you know, he might still have something to contribute here. So they, you know, so he looks good in a PTO. He ends up coming back in six games. Hasn't really done a whole heck of a lot, but he's just a depth forward. But I think that was, you know, kind of the case of where, you know, hey, this guy has good chemistry with the team. Uh, they still remember him from when he was a blue just a few years ago. And so it was, you know, a bit of a, a little bit of a popularity contest there and i think that's a big reason why troy brower is back but on the flip side of that i do know analytics played a big role when the blues found sammy blay in the first place sammy blay was a sixth round pick in uh let me see which draft that was here real quick but he was a sixth round pick uh pick uh playing in quebec And he was not a highly regarded guy at all. He was a guy you had to kind of dig for. Um, He was drafted in the 2014 draft, sixth round, 176 overall from Montmagny, Quebec. I don't even know where the heck that is. I've never heard of that place. Yeah, neither have I. Yeah. I think it literally is one of those kind of like, you know, off, off the map, remote kind of a place. And, he was found by just so happened to be a blue scout that found him uh, just kind of out of the blue. I think he ran, so, you know, was looking at some statistics and this guy popped out to him and he decided to go out and, and take a look at him. By the way, Mount Magny is uh, northeast of Quebec City on the St. Lawrence River, just in case you were wondering. Huh. Um, but kind of a, a small community, kind of, yeah, small St. Lawrence River community. And yeah, he was no one was on Sammy Blay, no one else was interested. And analytics kind of led this scout to Sammy Blay. The Blues take take him in the sixth round, uh, sixth round. And this year on opening day, Sammy Blay was your second line left winger on the Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues. Uh, so that's. That's one area I think that they use analytics for is looking for these gems in the draft. The blues have done very well in the draft in recent years. And uh, I know the guy that you just mentioned, I mean, he came up from the Oshawa generals of the OHL. And I'm sure one reason that he was brought on uh, was because Oshawa has generated some great players over the years, like, you know, Lindros for example. And I'm sure that, you know, his insight will be needed, you know, whenever they look at uh, young players in the future.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think the blended model is probably the best model, you know, um, yeah. it's, it's nice to have hockey minds and, and analytics minds come together, be able to make decisions that not only look good, but also are reinforced by numbers. Exactly. And, and people forget, you know, we, we had a discussion
1: on blue notes. Uh, in, in fact, this, you know, very day that, you know, this, you know, we're recording this with uh, the Chicago Blackhawks host of the hockey podcast network, uh, Grant from the Hungry for Talk podcast. And one thing we kept talking about was the fact that these players are still human beings, right? And you still have to like who you're playing with. You know, you can look at numbers and um, you know, decimal points and you know, charts and graphs and everything like that. But if you, you, you find two players that just, you know, explode out of the, out of the graphs and out of the charts and you put them together and they don't like each other. They don't click. All the numbers in the world don't matter. They still, there still needs to be that you know human to human element uh, when it comes to evaluating players. Now, I do think that analytics does still plays a role though, in the fact that you can still find, you know, whether it's a deep sleeper like a Sammy Blay. Or you can find that, hey, these two players seem to really click very well. When they're on the same line, they tend to, you know, have good courses together. And I think that's, you know, it's another trend in the NHL that I've noticed is that, you know, you still have some lines, like the, you know, the Boston has this really good first line where you have three great players, you know, left to right. Colorado has a great first line, left to right. But if you look at the Blues – you know, the Blues, for instance, just, uh, you know, I mentioned Sammy Blay as a second liner for a while. The Blues on Saturday, they started uh, Nathan Walker on the first line. Now, who the hell is Nathan Walker, you ask? You probably never heard of him. Wait, the- was see that Australian from the Capitals? See, you've heard of him. That's right. See, but not many, when you say the name Nathan Walker, a lot of people don't remember that. Of course, I forget. I'm talking to a Caps fan here, so you know <laughs> you know him. Yes, he is, the, he is the Australian. And he had a really good uh, year so far in San Antonio, so the Blues called him up. And, yeah, Saturday he is starting alongside Brayden Shen and Jaden Schwartz. You know, and if you look at the Blues and the way they are set up on their lines, their top two lines have two constants. Number one is that Jaden Schwartz and Brayden Shen stay together. And the other constant is that Ryan O'Reilly and David Perron stay together. Now, O'Reilly and Perron, that's developed into a story of its own. Because this Halloween, at the Blues Halloween party, Ryan O'Reilly dressed up as David Perron. And David Perron dressed up as Ryan (laughs) O'Reilly. And they did not know they were going to dress up as, as each other. That is how close those two are. Wow! And you can look at the numbers, and David Perron's having a great year. He has become a, a kind of a almost a sniper for this team, and he was always kind of a, in my view, you know, he was you know a playmaker. I mean, in Vegas, I mean, he got most of his points, you know, you know via assists. But you know, and then you look at O'Reilly, and O'Reilly is one of those guys I'm sure analytics guys just love because he does so many little things, right? He's a Selkie contender, you know, he wins. He's a great face-off guy, but you know, those two are a case of, yes, the numbers seem to indicate they work out really well, but then you put them together and those two are the best of friends, you know? So, and and that, and, and again, that's, that just kind of, what I was talking about, you still need that human element.
0: Well, that's a great. That's a great note to leave this on. Uh, no pun intended. But uh, <laughs> uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show, and I wish you and the Blues the best of luck this season.
1: Abs, I appreciate that. Same as uh, for your Capitals as well. And I, I just want to say that I'm so glad you're doing this podcast because, like I said. When it comes to analytics, I'm still kind of, you know, in junior hockey level in terms of, you know, knowledge. Uh, I'm not quite at the NHL, you know, quite yet. And I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to listening to see what you do because I, I want to get educated on this and uh, I can just tell that you're going to be the guy to do that. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you're doing this, man.
0: That's fantastic. And uh, look forward to, to having you on in the future.
1: Absolutely. Maybe, well, maybe, maybe a little smarter next time. We'll see.
0: <laughs> we'll see if I can do a good job on my end of, of educating. Yes, absolutely. Well, you can find Tom on Twitter at Blue Notes Pod and tune into the Blue Notes Podcast on the Hockey Podcast Network, available on all major podcasting platforms. Thanks again. Thank you. And now, part two of our conversation with Brendan Farrell, the Grit Per 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, today on Stat Chat, I'm going to be joined by Brendan Farrell, uh, host of the Grit Per Sixty podcast, representing the Winnipeg Jets on the Hockey Podcast Network. You can find Brendan on Twitter at Grit Per Sixty Pod. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Ice Analytics. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So uh, I guess first off, we'll ease into this. Uh, as, as you know more than most, uh, and probably more than I do, the Jets have had a lot of turnover from last year's roster, uh, particularly on the blue line uh, with Truba and Myers and and uh, Buffalo's leave of absence. So I guess at this point in the season, how, how are you feeling about the performance so far as a team?
2: Uh, not great, obviously. Um, you know, the Jets defensively have been kind of a mess. It's not only just because of all the guys that have left, they've also had a a good amount of injuries on that back end too, and so you also have them leading the league and expected goals against right now, so that's not good
0: no that's that's not good at all uh, although at least at, at the time that we're doing this recording they're still vying for a playoff position uh, better better spot than some teams are right now
2: yeah I mean um, on our podcast uh, Connor my co-host and i we we always talk about how at some point, like we feel like regression is coming because at this point, like this team is sort of just Connor Hellebuck and the rest of the team. So at some point, we, uh, you know, I, I think that Hellebuck will probably end up slowing down. But you know, it's always good to bank points at, at this point in the year. So there's that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, I couldn't agree more, and I'm I'm glad you brought up Hellebuck because. Uh, one of the constants from last year is the goalie tandem of Hellebuck and Brassois. Um and Brassois had a, a really good year last year. I think he started like 20 some games and, and he uh, was playing, was playing great last year. Um, this year Hellebuck's definitely taken over. He's having a, a phenomenal year. As you said, Brassois has regressed a little bit um, in terms of his goals against and safe percentage uh, from last year. So, I mean, we know the importance of backup goaltenders for back-to-backs and and load management. And if they are going to be trying to make a playoff push, what, what's your what's your confidence level right now with with Brisoise?
2: Not not super high. Um, you know, obviously Connor Halbach. I mean, at this point, to me, if you're not voting Connor Hellebuck as like one of your top three Besna candidates, I think you're paying attention to the wrong things here. But yeah, it's been Total night and day for Laurent Brossois. He's only appeared in eight games, which that kind of tells you a lot. Um, and right now, he's sitting at a negative goal save above average. So, you know, it, it makes you definitely think about, you know, playing him more often, which means you're putting Hellbuck out there more often, which means that you're subjecting Hellbuck to that Winnipeg defense more often.
0: I think that's absolutely fair, and and I guess uh, I I appreciate that insight because I'm I'm looking at the numbers and I'm, and like you said the goal saved above average I'm looking at that and looking at his career it kind of feels like last year might have been the outlier uh, he had a really good year last year and the previous year when he was on Edmonton and this year it doesn't look like he's off to a great start so would you entertain the possibility of uh, you know moving forward next year because he isn't he's in he's only has a one year contract right now. Um, do you think they move on this off season?
2: Uh, I, I definitely think that there is a good chance that they move on from, uh, Laurent Brossois in the off season. Um, and also just because, uh, names are failing me right now, but there's a kid, uh, in the AHL right now for the jets, who's playing out of his mind, uh, I'll get the name in a little bit, <laughs> but I feel like they will—they will end up going in that direction. I think, but um, you know, it, it's certainly not a great situation. But at least not like the Sharks, you know, who you know they're—they're they're stuck with that tanner right now. You know, the, the Jets have some mobility with that backup goaltending position.
0: And th- no, that's that's great, and I think um, you know we've seen other teams do this, like the the Capitals this year with Samsonov bringing him up. Um, from the A, and uh, where, where he had a really good uh, good couple years. I, I guess, like, philosophically, taking a step back, would you would you rather see the Jets uh, bring somebody up, a young guy in, in the backup role, or, or would you rather have them uh, sign a veteran, you know, a, a Curtis McElhaney or something like that, so, or like what Boston did with Halak? Like, do you have any uh, preference either way what they do? Yeah, so I finally
2: figured it out. Um, Mikhail Berdine, that was, that was the kid I was thinking of. He's currently 21, playing in his first like full season in the AHL. He split time between the AHL and the ECHL last year. Uh, he's got 21 games played, 920 save percentage. He's been tearing it up. So, I mean, honestly, he's really young. So maybe they want to give him another year in the AHL. But I think that's something that they have to at least entertain.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, thankfully they're not paying a lot of money for Bursois and they're they're not locked into a long term commitment. So it, it seems like this would be a good time to move on.
2: Yeah. It sort of seems like that. But you know, there's just always a lot of variance in goaltending. You know, you can be a horrible one year and then be really good the next year. And I feel like that
0: sort of volatility is especially seen back of goaltenders too. Definitely, definitely. I mean, especially when you have a, a smaller sample size and you don't have the, the body of work that a starting goaltender has. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad you brought up uh, statistics and analytics and, and, and whatnot, because I do want to ask a bigger bigger question about the team. Um, and just because it's an analytics podcast, I feel like I have to ask all my guests this question. But uh, Paul Maurice was an early adopter I guess you could say I mean I I saw some transcripts of interviews back in 2014 that he talked about using analytics when a lot of GMs weren't really or or coaches weren't talking about it so uh, what sense do you have as far as the involvement of analytics in decision making for the Jets (sighs) to me it's just kind of tough because I just
2: think that where the defense is is that it's so hard to like kind of see through anything else when it comes to analytics um you know that's just kind of a I think that's just kind of a tough question i don't really have a great answer for because it's kind of hard for me to answer a question about analytics when it comes to a team with guys like lucas Biza and carl dahlstrom and like Dmitri kulakov as regulars in the lineup so it's kind of hard for me to just be like well they use this player who's only slightly worse in the analytics than this guy
0: no no I totally I totally get you I was just curious I mean we know there's outspoken proponents like Kyle Dubas we know that there's uh, outspoken uh, detractors like uh, Bob Murray and Anaheim and you know I I was just curious I mean I was interested to find that Paul Maurice kind of feels like an old school guy and I think that uh, you know the fact he at least talked about using them um, and, and their value I, it doesn't sound like he's anti-analytics. It doesn't sound like he's, super, you know, he might not be super pro-analytics. I was just curious on the spectrum, like, where where you saw the Jets. Well, I, at the very least, you know, one of the big things in analytics when it comes to special teams
2: is using the four forwards, one defenseman setup instead of three forwards and two defensemen. And they have gone with that, with Pionk being on the top unit and uh, Morrissey being on the second unit. So that is an area that, uh, whether or not that, they decided to do that through analytics or just because of the way the roster set up. That's another question, but that is something that they use in their lineup that plays out well, according to analytics.
0: Absolutely. And that's something I've seen over the past couple of seasons. Uh, And even, I think even Paul Maurice pointed us out that they don't look like analytics darlings like they did last year. So they're clearly paying attention to this stuff, which is, which is cool to see.
2: Yeah. and, And you know, they definitely need to pay attention to that because to me where they are on the standings is kind of a lie because there just, just isn't a good team here. It, it reminds me a lot of like uh, Anaheim last year when they got up to that hot start with John Gibson going crazy, saving like 35 shots a night or something ridiculous. I think Winnipeg has sustained that much longer than Anaheim did last year. But to me it's a very similar feeling.
0: Yeah. And that's depressing to hear. It's depressing to hear that, uh, you know, you feel like the cliff is coming, I guess. Big picture. Um, what would you like to, are you trusting the process of drafting and developing or would you like to see them make a big free agent splash at the deadline? I mean, I guess it all depends on where they're at in the standings at that time, but um, I guess where do you see things going forward from here? It's really tough. You yeah, know, I mean,
2: between uh, where Bufflin is sitting, you know, who knows what's going to happen on that front. Uh, the fact that I feel like buying on this team is is really risky. Because I sort of feel like this team, like I said, like it's not, not that it's not as good as where the standings say they are. But I feel like this team just making the playoffs would be a win for them. You know, I mean, they have their first for this year, obviously. Um, so, you know, they could always take advantage of that. But I don't really see how making a buy move this year would really benefit the team long-term. And it's not really like they have a great farm system right now. Um, so, you know, you obviously don't want to empty the farm. Like, the Athletic ranked the Jets' uh farm system at number 27 this past off season. So, you know, it's things like that. And it makes me feel like, you know, write it out with this group, see how far it can take you and, you know, sort of uh, retool for next year.
0: Absolutely. Uh, I, I like that. I think that's the way to do it. You know, uh, I, when it works, it works, but when you, when you buy at the deadline and you know, you're given your mortgaging your future and it doesn't work, then, um, that's the worst case scenario.
2: Yeah. And what I think
0: maybe they could do,
2: I'm not really sure if i would be like a big fan of this. I could see them like maybe whether it's at the deadline or the off season uh, trying to flip one of their forwards for a defenseman. I don't mm-hmm. know if, again, like I said, I don't know if that would necessarily be the best move for them. Cause I mean, they do have like five, high-quality forwards in Wheeler, Connor, Shifley, Line A, and Ellers, right? But, you know, you, maybe you have to sacrifice a forward to, you know, do something with that defense. But also at the same time, defensively, three guys have their contract expiring this off season, So that's more mobility you got there. Now whether or not you can attract a free agent to Winnipeg, that's a whole other story.
0: Right, right. Well, uh... No, th- this is good, and and I I wish I had, I wish I had more questions about this because uh, I I think this is this is promising. I think that uh, you clearly know your stuff about the uh, the Jets, and I think that uh, this is a good good chat about backup goaltending and the roster in general. So uh, I just again I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, come on the show, and I wish you and the Jets the best of luck. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you can find Brendan on Twitter at grit 60 pod and uh, tune into the grit per 60 podcast on the hockey podcast network available on all major podcasting platforms. Thank you for, uh, thank you for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Have a good one. I hope that you enjoyed the stat chat as much as I enjoyed talking to both Tom and Brendan. It was great to hear their thoughts on the respective backup goaltending situations in St. Louis and Winnipeg, very different situations this year from last year Contrary to what I think most people expected going into the season. So what is our takeaway on the topic of backup goaltending? Honestly, it matters more or less depending on your situation. This doesn't matter much for teams that are rebuilding, bad goaltending teams in general, or teams with a solid tandem, or for teams with enough goal production to compensate for a lackluster backup. Basically, any team that makes the playoffs with a stud starting goaltender is fine. However... There are two cases in particular in which solid backup goaltending becomes increasingly important. Injury and teams that are on the edge of the playoffs. The first one is is self-explanatory. If you lose your starting goaltender, you will still need to compete with a respectable backup. The second one is tricky because it is hard to completely isolate the impact of backup goaltending. But I continue to look at the 18-19 Habs as an example of a team that barely missed the playoffs. In this case, by three points. Teams like Winnipeg, Nashville, and Toronto have a razor-thin margin right now. Bersois, Saros, and whoever the hell backs up Anderson tonight could be a difference maker if they miss the playoffs by a few points. Don't sleep on it. The NHL is a high parity league, and you need all the wins you can get. Because once you get in the playoffs, who knows what can happen? On that note, I want to apologize for the length of this episode and greatly appreciate those who made it Being the premiere, we wanted to have a double feature stat chat. It was absolutely worth it, but it did take a little longer than usual. I can assure you that future episodes will definitely be more constrained, somewhere around the 45-minute mark. Oh, and remember, always drink and think responsibly. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ice Analytics, your source for NHL stats and analysis, hosted by the Hockey Podcast Network. Every team, everywhere. Follow me on Twitter at Ice Analytics and be sure to check out statsenforcer.com for show notes and visualizations used in this episode.